if you would take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, I, uh, we're going to talk today about, I think, one of the most incredible people in the Word, King David. And if you want to start, we're going to start in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 1. You know, David is really apropos for a Father's Day. The dude is a man's man. And I don't know about you, but I love stories of underdogs and people who start out at the bottom and they rise up to prominence and significance, and David really is one of those. He was a shepherd in the field who became a king in the palace. He is a true alpha male, okay? Yet, he has a sensitive side to him of a poet, He's adept with, he was a, as, as adept with the harp as he was to wielding a sword. He was as comfortable being a warrior in battle as he was a worshiper before God. He was a mega sinner, but a super saint. We can attest to this because this is, this is God's declaration of him. Acts 13, says this, after removing Saul from being king, he made David their king. And he testified concerning him. God said this about him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. Oh, parenthetically, let me stick this in because as the senior pastor of the church, I need to make sure that I cover everything. I, uh, last week we had Pastor Blake speak. And, I, and, he, and I, I know he offended a large group of our animal lovers population. People said, why are you wearing that shirt today, Pastor? And I just want you to know I love cats. I, uh, <laughs> so I keep everybody in the fold. Uh, so I'm wearing my cat shirt today. I want to do a flyby this morning on David. I want to hit some of the highs and the lows of his life, and just learn some simple lessons and principles for us to take with us of a man who loved God deeply, but failed just the same. But I don't know about you, but if I could have the epitaph written about me that he wrote about David, I would go, yes, where God would say, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. And the first thing, this is kind of the over, there's two really overarching things when I think about David. The first one is this, failure is never final. That is such a hopeful thing for me, that failure is never final. You can determine really the caliber of a person by the amount of opposition or difficulty it takes to stop them, to discourage them, or what happens to them when they make a bad decision. Will it keep them from pursuing and fulfilling their God-given destiny and life purpose? Or will they work through it and move on? See, David resisted a lot of negative things. He resisted negative people around him. He resisted people that failed him, betrayed him, rebelled against him, turned on him. But he always responded to God. And in the midst of some of the major failures that he faced in his life, guess what? He never gave up. He always got back up. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, that the godly man may trip seven times, but they'll always get up again. And I want us to, as we look at David, the man had some significant failures in his life, but he always got up. And you know, one of the failures of his life was really he was not a strong father. And I believe there's some reasons for that. But I want to just, it's Father's Day, so I just want to take a couple of minutes and remind you of a couple of things about being a father. So if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 1, I want to start at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and he said this. If you read the first four verses, you're going to find out David's on his deathbed. And he's got this son that steps up and this is what he says, I will be king. So he got the chariots and the horses ready and with 50 men to run ahead of him. So there was this full-blown full blown rebellion against the nation, but sadly against his father, the king. Now I find this interesting, this parenthetical statement that is inserted right here afterwards. It says literally in parentheses, verse 6, his father had never interfered with him by asking why do you behave as you do? 
And then it makes this other kind of parenthetical statement where it says this. He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Do you remember Absalom? He was another very handsome son of David. Now remember, David is also noted was handsome, very, very statuesque, very, uh, a manly man. I said he's an alpha male. He's the total package. But he says about his two sons, they were both handsome. Absalom was known for this incredible head of hair that he had. And it's interesting that both of them rebelled against their father and tried to usurp the kingship from him. But it notes here in the scripture they were born close together, weren't they? David's 70 now when this is being written, about ready to die. And I think that there's something that is, is very important for us to remember as dad as dads, that you know what, his sons probably, uh, Absalom and Adonijah, probably rebelled and turned against him because at, at the time that they were being raised and grown up, it, David was probably very involved in battle, very involved in the kingdom development of the nation of Israel as the king who followed Saul. And for whatever reason, he didn't give them, possibly didn't give them the time that they needed. He definitely didn't give them the direction that he was supposed to. Because the scripture makes it very clear that David never stepped in and interfered with them. And the two sons that were born close together, probably during the, the time of David's rise and establishment of, of the kingdom as a father, he probably was a, oftentimes an absent father. Now, think about this. Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he interfere? Well, I think the text can give us some idea possibly to that. What does it say? He didn't want to step in. He didn't want to make the tough calls. Sometimes parents, we, we, we parent from guilt, don't we? Maybe we've been away for a while. We don't do some of the things we're supposed to do, follow up on some of the things we said we'd do. So we kind of take a passive and a permissive stance. I kind of wonder if that isn't what David did because he knew he was gone so much. He was out there fighting battles that when he came home, he just wanted to relax and just kind of, well, I'll just be a friend with the boys. Then it says that they're handsome. I see parents sometimes that are so enamored with their kids, with their gifts, maybe with their skills, maybe with their looks. They, they're so enamored with them, they treat them differently. They almost treat them like an equal, like a friend, instead of parenting them. And instead of stepping into their life and speaking into their life, they coddle them. That's not good parenting. Dads, this is a great reminder for us. Wherever our kids are, whatever it is, we need to make sure that we're not only stepping into their life, but speaking into their life. And we don't just kind of wink at some of those things that we think are all right. We don't try and make up and compensate for what we haven't done in the past, maybe, but we continue to speak into their life now. David's got one foot in the grave, and he's got this son that is rebelling and pushing for power to take over the kingship and to usurp his authority. Now, if you turn the page, you'll probably go to 2 Kings chapter 2, and I want you to read the first few, or read along with me. Note it with me. Now he is, it specifically says he's dying. Before he was just in bed, he was bedridden. Now it says in chapter 2, verse 1, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. He said, I'm about to go all the way of the earth. So be strong. He's talking to Solomon now, his last son. And what does he do? He says, you be strong. Show yourself a man. Well, how are you going to show yourself a man? He says it this way. You observe yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. So now he's speaking into his life and he says things like this. Walk in God's ways. Keep his decrees and commands. His laws and his requirements is written in the law of Moses. Why? So that you can prosper. in all you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they will walk faithfully before me, and with all of their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. 
So David is challenging Solomon, not only for his life, his leadership, and his family, but also for David's legacy. And dads, it's just a simple reminder today. Never be afraid to step into the life of your child, to speak into and speak to your children. David's an old man, but he has young sons. And I, and I got to believe that he's laying on that bed thinking, I missed it. I missed it with Absalom and Adonijah. But I'm not going to miss this opportunity with Solomon. Failure's never final. And, and maybe you're a dad today. Maybe your kids aren't where you want them to be. Or maybe there's a chasm and a separation between you and them. Take the initiative. Go after them today. Be the one that steps up, speaks into their life. Second thing, failure isn't final. How you deal with defeat. Where do you go when you go through a difficult time? Turn over, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30, we see where David faces a defeat. I don't know about you, but I've learned this about most people. Most of us will not, do not get through life without getting sideswiped, rear-ended, betrayed, let down in some area of our life. And David is experiencing that here. He's going to experience the fickleness of friends, the fickleness of followers. He's going to have to get some leadership mojo going and step up to the plate when he's about to lose the closest people to him. The background of 1 Samuel chapter 30 is, as you see, David and his men have been out, and there was a lot of history to this. They were almost ready to fight against their own nation, Israel, because David is kind of outside of the nation of Israel because he's on the run from Saul. But he ends up not having to fight. He's been away for a season from his home in his village called Ziklag, and all of a sudden, he's coming back home. And as he's coming back home, on the horizon, they're coming up. Can't you, you can just imagine it. They've been away for a while, and they're excited to see, ah, guys, we're going to go get to see our kids. We're going to go get to see our wives. We're going to get to sleep in our own bed, have a home-cooked meal. And they're riding along, and they're excited because they didn't have to battle. And all of a sudden, they... They get close to Ziklag, their little village, and they see smoke billowing up. And they go, wow, this isn't, this isn't good. This isn't right. And, and so they get up to the village, and they find out that it's been plundered and destroyed. Now, let me read you part of it. Chapter 30 says this, verse 1, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now, the Amalekites, they had raided the Negev and the Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag. They burned it, and they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They didn't kill any of them, but they carried them off, and they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. Their wives and sons and daughters had been taken captive. So David, listen to this. David and his men literally wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. These guys are bad dudes, and they are broken. Hey, have you ever been there where you just, you cried or you were so broken, you just didn't know what else to do? And that's what these guys are. Verse 6 says, now David was greatly distressed. <laughs> Listen to this. Because the men, this is his brain trust, the close people to him. And notice what it says, and David was distressed. Why? Because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Period. But notice what David does. It says, but David. But David found strength in the Lord, his God. It's a personal God. Some of your translations say it this way. But David found, or David was encouraged in the Lord. Do, do you know how to do that? How to find strength in God when, you, when everything is burned up and beat down and broken around you? Do you know how to encourage yourself in the Lord? How to find strength in the Lord, your God? And what's really cool is, is 
This is his 911 right here. You'll see it. Then David says to Abiathar the priest, the son of Abimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought it to him. It was the way that the priest would oftentimes use it to discern God's will and direction. So what does David do? And David inquired of the Lord. First thing he does is he gets encouraged himself in the Lord. And then he inquires of the Lord. And he basically says, shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I be able to overtake them? And what does God say? God says, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. I love that. See, David faced here is a time of brokenness and loss. But what does he do? He encourages himself in the Lord. His 911 is simply, God, I need to know what to do, how to do this. And see, when he could have given up and been down, knowing that everybody was against him, betrayed him, the fickleness of his followers, they didn't want to follow anymore, they wanted to stone him. There was something in David that rises up and says, no, I'm going I'm to find my leadership sweet spot. Can I tell you something? That's what men do when you're leading a family and everything's going south. That's what mothers do. That's what leaders do when everything is going south. I find it interesting. He encouraged himself. Hear me, loved ones. A pastor didn't come to encourage him. A friend didn't come to encourage him. A family member didn't come to encourage him. He had to get it here from within and say, God, you got to be my encourager. Because let's face it, friends, this is what you learn over time. If you wait for somebody else to encourage you, guess what? You may wait a long, 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 long time. And what happens? If you wait long, pretty soon, you'll become bitter in spirit, and you'll want to start stoning all the people around you because they don't come and encourage you. Instead of saying, I got to get with God, and I got to be strong in Him. And I want to remind you today, your strength and your Encouragement is never going to be based on the people around you, but it's going to be based on the God that you pursue and seek and go after. That's where you're going to find your strength. Are you in a ziklag today? I'm almost positive. I know there was a number in first service, but I'll bet there's people here today that you'd say, yeah, yeah, Terry, that's where I am. Where you feel like things are just kind of boiling up around you or burning, exploding. Maybe some of you, you know, you've been downsized and you're the one that's been on the block or maybe you're on the block or maybe finances are tight. Maybe your portfolio has gone down. Maybe there's a relationship or a spouse that you don't know where they're going to be in a day, in a week, in a month. It's your ziklag. This is what you do first thing you have to do is strengthen yourself in the Lord. Say, I'm not going to do this on my own. I'm going to do what God wants. I'm going to get my strength in Him. And then you begin to inquire of Him. Well, what do you mean inquire? Can I tell you what that is? Just simply pray. That's what David did. And God answered him. He said, Lord, what do I do? Do I pursue Him? Am I going to win? God says, go get the stuff. Pursue the goods. And I would say to some of you today, that might be the word of the Lord for you. Ask the Lord. Because I want you to notice in verse 18. God said, go, I'm going to take care of it. And then verse 18 says, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was destroyed of the people. And do you have maybe children that are running from God? Do you have a, a spouse maybe that you're separated from? Do you have a job that you've lost? Are there, are there things like that that have been lost in your life? I want to challenge you today. Get your strength in Jesus. Inquire of the Lord and go after it. 
Now, that doesn't mean you're going to put a shoestring tackle on those kids or the spouse or those other things. What it might mean is simply this, is that you begin to pray and pursue them through prayer, through kindness, through love. You let them know, I'm not giving up on this. What the enemy has come to steal and to destroy and to burn, I'm going to stick by this stuff. See, defeat's never final unless you walk away from it. How about failure? David dealt with defeat. He overcame it. How do you, how do you face failure? Well, you've got to keep your focus in this thing called failure. This is what I know. No garden is suddenly overgrown. No building suddenly crumbles. No nation, no business, no church suddenly becomes mediocre. And no marriage suddenly falls apart. Now, these things usually happen due to neglect, loss of focus, taking your eye off those areas, allowing your heart and your passion over time to drift. Isn't it easy to allow the tending of our heart to just kind of be, go dormant where we allow things to, to grow around our heart? Lose our focus for what we're doing? David does this when he failed. If you turn it over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read probably about David's second biggest failure in the scripture that most of us are aware of and familiar with when it comes to Bathsheba. When this happened, he's been the king for 20 years. He's now 50 years old. He's sitting back. The kingdom is going well. Everything is moving along. He's at the pinnacle of his power. He's experienced incredible success. He's beat down the enemy. He's built alliances. It's just kind of a deep breath time. But he lost his focus. Notice, picking up in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up, and from his bed, he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very, very beautiful. In our vernacular, she was hot. She was smoking. She was a tan. Because you know, the king could have anybody. But he noticed her beauty. And David sent someone, there's a whole thing here on temptation and how to deal with it in the process that it takes place. He sees her and then he sends someone to find out about her. And the man said, well, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, but David continues to pursue it. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. And the woman conceived, and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. There is an explosion of activity in those five verses, isn't there? I mean, boom, boom, boom. Hello, we're going to have a baby. And what does David do? Well, what you see is that, you know, he really should not have been there. What should he have been doing? He should have been out doing what kings do. That's what it says right there. See, in the spring, it says, in the spring, what do kings do? See, they do it in the spring because it wasn't too hot, it wasn't too cold. It wasn't too muddy and wet for their chariots to get around and to, and to do the, the, the foot warfare. They could move. It's kind of like our football season. You know, that, that was when they did it. It's spring, it's time to fight. Let's go subdue or take on other countries. But David didn't. He stayed back. And he said, Joab, Take the guys. I'm just going to hang out. Why would he do that? Well, he's 50. He said, he said 20 years of success. Maybe he's overconfident. He's been winning battles, and he figured that, you know what? Things are going to take care of themselves. I don't need to be focused on this. I mean, it's just business as usual. It's just another war. Or, or maybe he's battle-weary and bored and apathetic, whatever phrase you want to use. But there are those times in our lives when there's just not a whole lot of motivation running around, isn't there? It can happen with our work, our job, our family. It really happens a lot spiritually. Where we're no longer contending for what God has called us to, the assignments that he's, he's given us. 
And we begin to do things like this. You know what? I deserve a break. So I'm going to step out of this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to relax here. And then pretty soon you show up at church and you'll be sitting on a morning like this and you'll be thinking, wow, I sure wish my husband or my wife was here to hear this. Or, oh yeah, you know Bobby, I'm glad Bob, I see Bobby over, good, he gets to hear this. And pretty soon, you never hear the word. God's never speaking to you. Because you're, well, I'm good. I'm set. I wonder if that isn't where David was. Overconfident, apathetic. It's a very vulnerable place to be where you believe you can handle everything. And as strong as David was, guess what? As strong as he was to have a heart for God, guess what he does? This is the place that he falls. The giant killer is now about to be slain by a giant of lust. How about you today? Is there anything in your life that you're dealing with where you're, maybe you're compromising and you're moving towards something that you wouldn't usually move toward, but because of where you are, you're just a little tired of kind of contending and battling and you find yourself drifting a little bit. Maybe you're letting some spiritual discipline slide, fellowship with the church slip, and you justify it. I hear a lot of people, oh boy, you know, crazy times. Woo-hoo, job's knocking me out, man, it's busy. So what's the first thing we give up? We give up the things that are supposed to strengthen us. Remember, David walked with God. He had a heart after God, but yet he still falls here. And see, this is the problem. He falls and he has to deal with the fallout of compounding problems of sin. See, it just started with a look. Woo, woo, woo. She's hot. And then he sends somebody and then it moves to finally getting her. And then it's adultery. And then the husband is away in the service. And so what does David do? He compounds it again. And he says, I got to take care of this. She's pregnant. So what happens? He has her husband killed. So David's carrying this around. Now, if you go to chapter 12, I won't read it. But what happens is, is David is carrying this around. He thinks it's covered up. And God speaks to a man named Nathan who comes to confront him. Risky business for a guy to confront the king. Because, see, the king could have done a couple of things. He could have had him killed. Or he could have just lied. He could have denied it. He could have covered it up. But after... Nathan speaks to David's mind and it begins to touch his heart and his soul. David does the opposite of what Saul did last week. Remember Saul blamed, excused, and lied? These are the words that Saul spoke. He said, I regret, he said, Saul says this in verse 13, chapter 12, I have sinned against the Lord. See, some great lessons here from David when it comes to failure. Never forget, loved ones, it's never sin that destroys God's people. It's unresolved sin that destroys us. When we carry it around with us and don't deal with it, it will always affect our spiritual health. Remember, confession that David made to God wasn't for David's sake. When you and I fail and we confess it, it isn't for God's sake. God knows all about it. It's for our sake, so we don't carry it around. We get to release it, and we get to experience the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness. We're not carrying around the guilt anymore, but we get to be released from it. I gotta tell you, I'm gonna say this today, and there are gonna be people probably in both services that hear this, and within the next year, these things will happen. Somebody will fail. Somebody will take a bad left turn and head south. And when they do it, a couple of things will happen. Instead of taking it to God and just say, oh, I've sinned against God, I want to deal with it, they won't want to face it, and so they'll run. And all of a sudden, they'll be gone from church. It'll either be because they're ashamed, or they're just going to say, I don't want to deal with it, and I don't want anybody from this place to help me through it and they'll be gone, and they'll carry it. 
Or some people will say, I don't understand and know and I don't trust God's love. So they allow the enemy of their soul to condemn them. And then instead of responding to the convicting presence of Jesus Christ that says, I want you to come to me, they'll run from God and over to the enemy's camp. But this is what David says. This is why David is man after God's own heart. He says, God, I've sinned against him. And after this failure, this mega failure, murder and adultery, I don't know how many of us in here have done those two biggies. But this is what he does. He says, God, I've sinned against you. And then he writes Psalm 51. He journals to God. He doesn't know this is going to be in the Bible. This is a man that just loves God and is broken over his sin. And he writes this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And then you go down to verse 10 and he says, God, create a clean heart in me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's the heart of a man after God's heart. We acknowledge it. We don't excuse it. See, we can be like Saul and we can make excuses and blame and never take responsibility. Can I tell you what happens? The same thing will happen to you and me that happened to Saul, which was what? He was broke. Broken. Broke by his sin. But what was David? Totally different. David was broken before God for his sin. And in his brokenness, God began to get to put him back together again. See, friends, listen, never forget, God considers the depth of our repentance, not the depth of our sin. And sometimes we get so caught up in the sin part of it that we forget that God says, oh, no, we're going to take care of that. I just want to see repentance. It says, I'm going to change. I'm going to go another direction because I'm going to move with the voice and the spirit of God. See, David's a man after God's own heart. Notice what Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, for this is what the high and lofty one says, God. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You know what he's saying? I'm up here. You know that. I'm big, I'm large, I'm in charge. But when you fail and you're contrite, I come down. I live with you. I'm with you. I'm there to walk you through it. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. And he continued to be king in the midst of all of his failure. If you have failure today, friends, bring it to this lofty God that says, as you're contrite, I will come down to you and live with you. Well, with David, failure is never final. But understand this, he also teaches us success is never ending. See, David, from what we learn, true success is not a destination but a journey. God is always calling us forward to grow in him, take new territory. Till the end of David's life, he was always pressing forward, taking new territory. See, the ways of God are so much different than ours. Remember when David bursts on the scene, explodes in power? Everybody's running from this 10-foot giant named Goliath. And David just kind of moseys in as a little teenager. But before he comes, before he stands up to this giant, he's got some other backyard battles that he's had to face. David's greatest obstacles came from his own backyard. You know what that was? People around him. You know, some of you here, your greatest battle is what's been said about you, what's been said to you what you've heard from others. You kidding? You think you can do that? <laughs> Come on. Who do you think you are? 
See, David's father, Jesse, saw a boy but no king potential. We see in 1 uh, 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel comes, he's going to appoint the next king because God said, I'm going to reject Samuel. What does he do? Uh, uh, Jesse, David's father, brings seven of the eight boys. Samuel looks at all of them, and what does he say? Not him, not him, not him. And all of a sudden, he goes, do you have another one? And Jesse kind of goes, well, you know, yeah, but he's just a kid. He's tending the sheep out there. Boy, that's good for your self-esteem. So he brings him in, and Samuel says, he's the one. And he anoints him. See, his, his father never saw the king potential in him. How about David's brothers in Eliab, who was a jealous brother? Jesse sends David with some bread and some supplies to take to his brothers on the front lines where this big behemoth Goliath is. And so as David goes up there, he approaches him to give him stuff, just as innocent as anything. The brothers turn to him, and they say, why do you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep that you've been overseeing? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You only want to come here and watch this battle. See, the brothers didn't see any warrior potential in him either. Then David's leader, King Saul, he didn't see any champion potential. In chapter 17, King Saul hears someone's in the camp ready to take on the giant. He's waiting to hear and to see some stud muffin walk into his tent. And all of a sudden, this gangly little teenager shows up. What? And this is what he says. He says, you are not... You're only. And finally he relents and he says, well, okay. If that's what you want to do. And so then he tries to put his armor on him. And David says, no, that just doesn't fit. It's not going to work. I got to use what God's given me. A little slingshot that I killed a bear and a lion with. See, even his king didn't see any champion potential in him. But he doesn't allow the expectations to hinder him. And then he faces, and then he faces the enemy, Goliath. Goliath looks at him and says, you've got to be kidding me. He says, am I a dog that you can come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and your air and beasts of the, in your, uh, of the air and beasts of the field. There's definitely no respect there. How many of you have dealt with this, grown up with this? People have talked down at you. Maybe you deal with it today at work. See, this is what matters. What has God said to you? What has God done for you? When God enters his life, he can strengthen you to rise above your limitations. So often we face our limitations and we allow them to hold us back instead of work through them, move through them. I want to tell you today, loved ones, Don't listen to the people around you. Focus on what God has said to you. Because like David, he raised the whole nation up. When he slew the giant that everybody was afraid of, his confidence, his character, and his power began to raise a whole nation. And when you stand up for the things of God, when you believe that God has destined you and purposed you and give you an assignment for this life, oh, it may not be something in neon lights, but it's still something powerful and profitable to touch and to influence the people around you. When you do that, your kids will stand up and say, I'm going to be more courageous. People around you will respond differently. The way of the warrior. David was a warrior. We talked about how in 1 Samuel, we understand that he slew a giant, Goliath. Did you know that he had to face another giant? We always hear about Goliath, but we don't hear about the one later in his life. It's in 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 17. This is what it says. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became tired, exhausted. And Ishbibinab, one of the descendants of Rapha, who was talking about, it's really a, a, a descendant of Goliath and that family, his bronze spear weighed 300 shekels, which would be about 125 pounds. And he was armed with a new sword. He said that he would kill David, but Abishai came to David's rescue. See, David knew how to kill giants. He'd just get five stones and you use one of them and you beat him in the head. But this is what you forget. Giants have brothers and cousins and sons. And years later, they come back. 
See, some of you have probably slain, you know, you, you've kind of killed a few giants in your life, things that have attacked you and you've had to deal with. But never forget this, for the rest of your life, I don't care how strong you are in God, David's a perfect example. You will always face giants until the day you die. Can I tell you something? Oftentimes you'll face the same giants over and over and over. They'll disappear for a while, uh, but ultimately they usually come back. But this is what you have to know. You cannot take them on always the same way that you took them on before. See, David doesn't use stones here. David's in hand-to-hand -hand combat with this guy. He's older, says he's tired. Ish Bibinab was about ready to kill him, but what happened? David had to have one of the brothers come and help him. See, I want to remind us. Doesn't matter how close you are to God, you are going to have to battle for the rest of your life. Giants, issues, difficulties, and problems. But remember this, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we no longer battle from a position of hoping to win. We battle from a position of being victorious. But you have to fight. You have to contend for the things that God wants to do in your life. And you'll have to contend with the enemy of your soul. Just a spiritual principle. And sometimes you know what, you're going to need help from others. That's why growth groups are so important around here, is that we get people together to encourage, to strengthen one another, so that when you're in a battle, I just got a phone call from somebody this week that's in a significant battle. I'm one of his band of brothers right now that's standing with him so he doesn't fall. That's why growth groups become so important. The last thing is this. David was a consummate, incredible, reckless worshiper of God. 2 Samuel 24 tells a story about his willingness to pay and to worship God. And I believe it's here where we see the true greatness of his life. David's neither perfect nor sinless. Did you know if Saul and David were here today, most churches would probably take Saul over David. I mean, David, Saul made some mistakes, but he was handsome, he was good-looking, he was skilled, he was strong. Uh, David committed adultery and murder. Isn't it interesting that God raises up David and continues to use him to and through the end of his life, but the church today would probably applaud and approve of Saul. We would exalt Saul, dismiss David. But God doesn't see it that way. You know why? He looks at the heart. Now listen to me. That doesn't mean that you go, you excuse everything that you do and go, oh, you know my heart. I've heard that one. See, Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, that the heart is more deceitful. Who can know it? And so I've had people come up to me and go, oh, you know my heart, Pastor. That's why I'm living in disobedience. But I, you know, God loves my heart. No, no, no. He never goes easy on sin and disobedience. That's why he loves David. Because Saul excused it and David confessed it and said, I'm doing it, I'm going to change it. And here's another classic example of it here in chapter 24. David was told never, the idea was that the kings were not supposed to count and number their troops and, their, and their, their military. And David does that. He takes the census. And God says, because of that, David, because of that act of, of disobedience, I am going to do one of three things to the nation. And David thinks about the three things that God is going to do. It says in verse 10 of chapter 24, David was conscious stricken. Other translations says his heart was moved because of what he did. And God says, I'm going to give you the choice, David, of these three things. What do you want me to do? And David said, no, God, you choose because I trust your mercy. And so what God did is he sends a plague for three days on the nation of Israel because of David's counting in this census. But then this is what happens. As all this plague is taking place, 
David says, it's time now. God says, it's time to offer a sacrifice, offer worship. So what does David do? He goes to this place. He walks up to this man. This is on that day, verse 18. Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Irana looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out, bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Irana said this, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? He says, I want to buy your threshing floor so that I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Irana said to David, let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arana gives all of this up to the king. And Arana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But notice what David's response is. But the king replied to Arana, no, 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 no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David says, I'm going to pay. I'm going to give. He's saying this, I'm not going to skimp. I'm not going to cheat God. I may have failed him, but my heart is totally yielded and devoted to him. David is the consummate worshiper. You know what? You see it in his worship that is expressed in a service. If you read 2 Samuel 6 there, it's in your notes. Sometime read that this week. It's part of your devotional time through this. You know what you see? David is dancing before God. Loving God, celebrating the presence of the ark being returned. And his wife looks out the window and says, how can you act this way? And I love David's response. You know what he says? I, even I, will become even more indignified than this before my Lord. And he's dancing and he's chucking and jiving before God. You know what's interesting? Is God continues to bless him. His wife, Michelle, becomes barren because she's making fun of him praising. David is a worshiper, but not only in the way that he expresses his love for God, sings out, dances before God, but you'll see it right here. What does he do? He says, I'm going to pay whatever I have to. See, Saul never wrote a word to God. We know that. There's no record of him writing anything or speaking to God. He was impressive on the outside, but he always used the things of God to exalt himself. David always used himself to exalt the things of God. And you read, he is the sweet psalmist of Israel, always writing love letters to God, expressing his life and his experiences with God. Consummate worshiper. Listen, as the worship team comes, it is so easy for us, isn't it? The church today to take shortcuts. I had someone just recently say about Creekside, oh, you always want us to serve. You always want us to do something. And I, I had to scratch my head because I, I really couldn't remember the last time that I really pressed and taught and said, get out there and do something. I have mean, asked, invited. But I wonder if that doesn't speak to the heart of something. See, when you come to Jesus, everything to Jesus is free. It's the grace. It's the free gift of God. But can I tell you something? Everything afterwards costs you something. It needs to. It should. It has to. Because see, Jesus gave his best to us. All we can do is give our best back to him. Because, see, the church has a tendency to do this. Oh, I'm busy, so what's the first thing that goes? Ministry. Oh, finances are tight. Oh, I can't give. What kind of trust does that say? Give me a freebie. I'll take it. Let me just sit and enjoy it. Well, good. But at some point, like David, I want to say, it's going to cost me. What's it costing you today? Are you looking for the easy way? Because I think David comes to us and says, if you want to have a heart for God, there's always going to be a price to pay. Worship is going to cost you.
I want to invite you to think about a next step today. I want you to just listen to maybe some steps that you, the Lord might speak to you to take. Maybe there's an area of compromise in your life. You're not dialed in spiritually. You're coasting, and you know you're coasting and drifting into some things you shouldn't be. You know your worship's not costing you anything. You're simply expecting and receiving. And maybe the Lord would begin to say, today's the day where you need to start paying. I'm not talking about money specifically. I'm just talking about where your life is giving something for the Lord. Maybe you're facing a ziklag and you need to call on God. Maybe things are burning around you. Or maybe you need to go after something or somebody to rescue them, to receive them back. Some of us could be battle-weary. Maybe you just need to say, I need a break and I need to inquire of the Lord and I need to hear His voice today. God will give you a word. Maybe you need to believe better about yourself because God believes better about you than what everybody else does. And maybe you need to say, Lord, would you just give me a better understanding of how you see me so I can move forward in what you have for me. Would you just take a moment to say, Lord, what's going to be my next step in this process? Just take a moment, pray to the Lord.